I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading 2 Corinthians chapters 5 through 9. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. We begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with a security of knowing that our reward is in heaven. Verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven, if indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life." Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him." Paul concluded chapter 4 discussing the future glory of the believer, thus making life sacrifices on earth rather trite by comparison. He continues that thought in the first nine verses of chapter 5. The believer's earthly body is contrasted with the eternal resurrection body in heaven. The hardships of chapter 4 make the acquisition of this heavenly body very appealing. But Paul expresses his desire to be where God wants him for the purpose of the ministry. Verse 1 begins with a verb in the Greek perfect tense to be understood as we have known. He seems to be indicating that going to heaven after death is a concept that was commonly accepted by the author and his letter recipients. He then mentions the guarantee of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. He mentions it again here in verse 5. In other words, God's guarantee is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's the guarantee of his intent to take us to heaven. A very powerful analogy. Look at the article that I've written entitled The Earnest of the Spirit. It's in the box to the right if you're looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, or you'll find it under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. Verses 6 through 8 say that while we're here ministering, we're not there in heaven and vice versa. Paul expresses his desire to be well-pleasing in God's eyes while he's here as well as when he appears before the judgment seat of Christ, which he brings us to in verse 10. Let's read verse 10. What about judgment? Verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Since the thought of being well-pleasing in God's sight is the emphasis of verse 9, verse 10 deals with the event we know as the judgment seat of Christ. If you'd like a more complete look at this judgment of believers, and believers only, I should add, then we refer to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10-15. through 15. In that passage, Paul compares the Christian life to a building. 
Christ is the foundation of that building, and we build upon that foundation with our lifelong actions as a believer. Spiritual actions add to the foundation gold, silver, precious stone. Carnal actions, wood, hay, and stubble. Paul briefly makes reference to that judgment event in this verse. Some Bible teachers refer to the judgment seat of Christ in this verse as the Bema seat. They call it that instead of the judgment seat of Christ. The actual Greek word for judgment seat in this verse is Bema, and it's defined as being a raised platform mounted by steps and usually furnished with a seat used by officials in addressing an assembly, often on judicial matters. Uh, Bema is only used 12 times in the New Testament. Ten of those occur within this earthly judicial scenario. Only here in Romans chapter 14, verse 10, does Bema actually refer to the judgment seat by Christ of believers. So, by the way, I should point out that um, the word Bema means judgment seat. So if you say Bema seat, then you're actually saying judgment seat seat. Kind of redundant. But going on, anyway... Paul fully intends to describe this judgment of believers as a future event patterned after a court appearance as seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10-15, through 15, the actual setting for this particular judgment. In that passage, the good is represented by gold, silver, and precious stone, while the bad is represented by wood, hay, and stubble. Now, one must understand the scenario of the actual judgment in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 to understand the reference to good and bad in verse 10 here. Without that point of reference, one might mistakenly see this as a judgment of both saved and lost people. Only saved people will appear at the judgment seat that's described here. Again, let me emphasize, to understand verse 10 in its proper context, go look at the notes on 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10-15, through 15, and study both passages together. What is our motivation for telling other people about Christ? That's the topic in verses 11-21 through 21 of chapter 5. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you." For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation." Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ." As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, to properly understand verse 11, it's vital to understand the judgment scenario of verse 10, coupled with the actual procedures of this judgment 
as seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. Specifically, both passages deal with Paul's labor in the ministry. Verse 11 begins with his mention of the ministry to the unsaved when he says, "...knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men." The terror of verse 11 refers to the outcome of the unsaved as seen by his phrase, "...we persuade men." This terror, which is, by the way, the Greek word phobos, means fear, this terror is a reference to God's consistency in rewarding faith and rejecting those who reject Him. So why is Paul telling them all of this? Well, he answers that question in verses 12 and 13. He works for his Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 12, Paul says, in essence, I'm not bragging about what I do and why I do it, just informing you so that you can explain it to others. Paul addresses his own mental state in verse 13, sound mind or not. Whatever they may think about his motivation, he does it for God. That's the context of verses 14 and 15 when he begins by saying, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. In other words, Jesus died for all, indicating that all were in need of salvation. Therefore, those of us who live, meaning saved people, we should now determine to live for Christ. Therefore, Paul goes on to explain the ministry of reconciliation that is the responsibility of believers. That's the task of telling the lost about Christ as Savior. The wording of verse 16 is somewhat confusing, so let's break it down. Verse 16 says, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. So, in other words, from now on, we're going to view people in terms of the spiritual rather than their physical being. Continuing, Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, in other words, once Paul only knew Jesus Christ as a mortal before Paul's salvation experience. Continuing now, Yet now we know him thus no longer. In other words, we no longer view Jesus Christ in that mortal state, but in his spiritual state. So, to sum it up, he's encouraging his readers to view people in light of eternity, the redeemed and the lost. Verse 17 clarifies, verse 16, after salvation, believers are spiritual entities rather than just physical entities. Now, let's take a moment to deal with the misconception regarding verse 17. Here's what it says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This verse has been misunderstood by many to indicate that believers no longer struggle with the sinful nature after salvation. Now, that notion is out of context and completely disregards verse 16. Here's what actually does take place at salvation. Each person who receives Jesus Christ as personal Savior does so by receiving the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, where the Jews are Greeks, where the slaves are free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. The term baptism of the Holy Spirit is used incorrectly in some circles, but here's the exact definition given by Paul himself. It's the process whereby we are saved. That's right. All believers become believers by being baptized by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into the body of Christ, 
And again, that's according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. In other words, if you haven't been baptized by the Holy Spirit, you haven't been saved. This doctrine is further confirmed by Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Here's what that verse says. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So, to simply restate it, all believers are baptized by the Holy Spirit. So, you see, we are new creatures or creations in Jesus Christ because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation. Our sinful nature is not eradicated, but the presence of the Holy Spirit is there to give us God's control over that sinful nature. Paul emphasizes the miracle of the new birth in verse 17 and encourages his readers to take this message of God's reconciliation through Jesus Christ to the world. He does so in verses 18 through 20 and says we do this because we are ambassadors. Verse 18 says that all are of God. Through Jesus Christ, we as believers have been reconciled to God. The verb reconcile means to reestablish proper, friendly, interpersonal relations after these have been disrupted or broken. That reconciliation took place at salvation. Now we, as believers, have the responsibility of taking that word of reconciliation to other people. We then see in verses 19 and 20 that when, as ambassadors, we take the word of reconciliation to the world upon receiving Christ as Savior, their sins are no longer imputed. The Greek word there is logizomai. That word means counted against you. Those sins are no longer imputed to them, no longer counted against them. Verse 21 is perhaps the clearest picture of salvation in the New Testament. Here's what it says. For he, meaning God, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us as saved people, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that being Jesus Christ. So you see, salvation is a gift. We are made righteous before God by receiving Christ as our Savior. We do nothing else to deserve heaven. Paul made the very same point regarding righteousness to these Corinthians in his first letter to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Here's what that verse says. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The righteousness that gets us to heaven is imputed to us. In other words, it's accounted to us because of and through Jesus Christ. We see in chapter 6 that right now is the right time, beginning in verse 1. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulation, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by longsuffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, 
as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Paul admonishes the Corinthians to not receive the grace of God in vain. This would appear to be an extension of his comments from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, regarding every believer's responsibility to be an ambassador. In verse 2, he quotes Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. That's where God promises to make Israel thrive before the other nations by the Redeemer. Paul seems to be appealing to the Corinthians to exhibit a positive testimony before the world so that they can reflect the glory of Christ, our Redeemer. He commends himself to them as one who has made great sacrifices to proclaim Christ. Notice the extent to which Paul sacrificed to do so in verse 3. Here's what he says. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. Paul was more interested in reaching people for Jesus Christ than satisfying his own desires. He details the components of his ministry in verses 4 through 10. Those are the sacrifices and joys of the ministry, along with the power given him to do so through the word of truth, the Holy Spirit, and the power of God, verses 6 and 7. As you can see from his words, his ministry had some joyful times and some sorrowful times. Now to the point in verses 11 through 13, Paul made his sacrifices to the ministry out of love, and in this case, love toward these Corinthians, we see in verse 11. Although they have not demonstrated this same level of love toward Paul, as we see in verse 12, they are encouraged to do so in verse 13. So here's the question in verses 14 through 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Who are you hanging around with? Verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty." This may seem like the introduction to a whole new subject, but perhaps not. Let's follow Paul's progression of thought from his encouragement in chapter 5, verse 18. That's where he admonishes these Corinthians to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. He then recommends in the first 13 verses of chapter 6 a lifestyle like his own that's free from actions which would impede people from coming to Christ. This emphasis upon testimony continues into this statement in verse 14, when he says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It's exactly that unequal yoke with unbelievers that causes believers to lose their resolve for the ministry of reconciliation. These are great concept verses establishing the believer's proper relationship with unbelievers. They've been used appropriately to guide believers in business, marriage, and personal relationships. So it's like this. When you choose to partner with those who are unsaved, they will likely at some point call upon you to compromise your testimony. 
Paul's usage of the word Belial in verse 15 is interesting. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word Belial is transliterated in the King James Version as a proper name. But in fact, that was a general use word for worthless persons, as is usually indicated in the New King James Version. It was not the name of an Old Testament god. The Greek word here is a transliteration of the Hebrew word, and then the same word is transliterated again into English. All three languages use the same exact word. It's only used this one time in the New Testament, by the way, since worthless persons are equated with being motivated by Satan in many instances. Perhaps Paul is using the word here as an equivalent to Satan himself. Whatever his exact intentions are in this passage, we certainly do get the point. Paul further makes his point by directly referencing the concept of several Old Testament scriptures regarding the dwelling place of God in the holy place. When he says here in verse 16, For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul may have been referencing any number of Old Testament passages to make that comparison, or in the establishment of the tabernacle in which God would dwell among the Hebrews, or perhaps even Solomon's temple. As a temple of God, believers don't thrive very well in an environment that has an animosity toward God. That concept is embodied in this passage, so here's the lesson. Just as God, who dwelled among the Jews, insisted on the separation of Israel from the surrounding godless nations, so God desires that we separate our lifestyle from those who have rejected Christ as Savior. That is the strong message of verses 17 and 18. Those verses say, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. In those verses, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 52, verse 11, regarding the ceremonial purity. It's clear that Paul emphasizes the ceremonial purity that should be associated with the dwelling place of God, which is the body of each believer. Verses 17 and 18 receive more explanation in the discussion, beginning in chapter 7, verse 1, which we'll look at just in a moment. In chapter 7, verse 1, Paul puts a cap on chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This verse finishes off chapter 6 by making reference to the promise in verses 17 and 18, where it says, And I will receive you, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, choose your friends among believers. Those who are committed to Christ should find that they have little in common with those who have chosen to reject Christ as their Savior. When Israel violated this principle, they fell into sin and turned their backs on God. Generally speaking, believers who embrace unbelievers as friends end up doing likewise. So let's put it together into one thought. Wherefore come out from among them in verse chapter 6, verse 17, coupled with, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit in chapter 7, verse 1. Now, about that letter I wrote you, Paul's talking now in chapter 7, verses 2 through 16, about a previous letter. Verse 2, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts. 
to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you, when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceived that this same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Therefore we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Well, here we find some personal comments to these Corinthians. Paul makes reference to a previous letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, Most scholars believe this was a very harsh, no-nonsense letter, which no longer is extant, meaning available, written after 1 Corinthians. It must have been a humdinger, because Paul spends quite a lot of time in 2 Corinthians talking about its effects on the Corinthians and the church there. He was concerned about the impact that letter might have had on the Corinthians. His mind was set at ease when he received the positive report from Titus in verses 6 and 7. Based upon the report from Titus to Paul, they had received the letter and it had some favorable impact on them. Then Paul talks about repentance from a Christian's perspective, beginning in verse 9. It's important to recognize that Paul's talking about saved people repenting from sinful actions. Notice that he identifies sorrow and repentance as two different processes. He then expands his discussion to the relationship of sorrow, repentance, and salvation in verse 10. Here's the relationship. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to salvation. Repentance in the New Testament is not to be sorry for your sins. The Greek noun for repentance is metanoia, and it means a change of one's mind or attitude. So what does one repent from at salvation? You might ask that question. The answer is found in Acts chapter 20, verses 20 and 21. That's where Paul says in verse 21, Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, repentance is a change of mind or attitude toward a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. 
This repentance may or may not be prompted by godly sorrow, as we see in verse 10. Paul then gives them a little bit of a pep talk about how well they received his previous harsh letter and corrected their actions. He expresses that he wrote the letter in love. In verse 12, Paul refers to the offending individual in the church. If you want to know more about that, see chapter 2, the notes on that. He expresses the thought that it was equally as important that the church come to a unified, godly position regarding this offense as it was to deal with the offender himself. Paul's thankful that this appears to have been done there according to his report from Titus. Then we find Paul talking about assisting brethren in need in chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing." imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only so, as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also." I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality." As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. So Paul first mentioned assistance to the believers in Jerusalem back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Why they needed assistance, we just don't know. A famine there is suspected. In this passage, Paul brings up the fact that the Corinthian neighbors, being Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, about 200 miles north up in Macedonia, they had given to this cause. We see that in verses 1 through 5. And the Corinthians were encouraged to do the same as evidence of their love in verses 6 through 8. Paul had apparently asked Titus to address this issue of their giving on his trip there. Paul indicates in verse 9 that since Christ gave everything for our salvation with our spiritual wealth in mind, a sacrifice of material needs for fellow brethren shouldn't seem like a really big deal. Based upon this principle, he encourages them to give of their surplus to those in need as they had purposed to do a year earlier. He says that in verses 10 through 12. Now it's time to follow through with their commitment. Verse 13 has an interesting stipulation that flies in the face of modern-day preaching that proclaims, Give till it hurts. Notice that Paul's admonition there is to provide for them with offerings, but not to the point of bringing a burden upon the giver. 
In verse 14, Paul then makes the point that one's abundance within the body of Christ is appropriately shared with those who lack. In verse 15, Paul quotes from Exodus chapter 16, verse 18 to make his point. This passage deals with the abundance of manna for the children of Israel. So who's going to take the money to Jerusalem? Well, that's the subject of verses 16 to 24 of chapter 8. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself, and to show your ready mind. Avoiding this, that any one should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us, providing honorable things not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore show to them... And before the churches, the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Paul gives a hearty recommendation that Titus head up the collection campaign for the Jerusalem church, and two unknown assistants are referenced to help him in this passage. Verse 19 describes the first as a well-known, able preacher among the churches. The second assistant is identified in verse 22 as a spiritual brother. Verse 20 indicates that Paul would go to Jerusalem himself to take this generous gift to the church there, but he did not want to be accused of using money to soften up the attitudes of those Jewish-acting believers in Jerusalem toward him. In verse 24, Paul makes yet another appeal for the Corinthians to give generously for this relief cause as a demonstration of their love. Then we have more in chapter 9 about the financial need in Jerusalem, verse 1. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boastings of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared." We, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Well, speaking of Corinthian giving, he's still not done. Paul continues with his discussion about the saints in Jerusalem needing some financial assistance. The Corinthians had promised, along with believers in Macedonia, to help with their need a year ago. Paul's reminding them of their promise and expressing the need so that they might prepare in advance to meet this previous commitment. Then we find a key to giving in chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. Verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap also sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. 
As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness, while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Well, here Paul explains to the Corinthians, well, and to us, the need for giving willingly and cheerfully. As we indicated earlier, it's misguided preaching when it said God wants you to give till it hurts. Giving needs to be done under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And when we are led by the Holy Spirit to give, it may be a sacrificial amount that we do give, but the prompting to do so and the resultant joy come from the Holy Spirit, not the persuasive speech of one trying to gather the funds. In other words, our offerings need to be gifts that people under the influence of the Holy Spirit gladly give to the ministry. When folks don't give, that's just a symptom of a greater spiritual problem. Fixing the symptom doesn't actually provide the missing victory in the believer's life that only comes as one is led by the Holy Spirit. Now notice the specific instructions given by Paul about giving in verse 7. He says you need to give as you purpose in your heart. And then he says not grudgingly. Then he says not of necessity. And he caps it off with God loves a cheerful giver. Now verse 6 does say he who sows sparingly will reap also sparingly and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul emphasizes that stinginess begets stinginess and generosity begets generosity. And what's the result of your generous giving? Well, verse 8 says that when we are generous, God meets our needs and gives all sufficiency in all things. He quotes Psalm 112 verse 9 in verse 9 here to emphasize the attribute of righteousness that's associated with sacrificial giving to others. He continues to enhance this principle along with the thankfulness of the recipients for the extension of love to them represented by the gift itself, and that's in verses 10 through 14. Paul concludes this discussion in verse 15 with these words, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Apparently he's going back to the concept introduced in chapter 8 verse 9 when he emphasizes this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. In light of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, how can one squabble over a little bit of money? This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.